for today, let's turn to Revelation chapter 2. We have uh, been in the book of beginnings, which is what Genesis means, the beginnings. And we're going to the book of uh, the back of the Bible. So from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible. And uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now you should have in your... Um, in your bulletin, one of these outlines. It's a, a bit more detailed outline than what you normally get, and it's, it's just for this week. Notice that one side of it is a chart. This is showing where we're going to get, be going in the next eight weeks, which is how long I think this series is going to take us to go through. And instead of looking at this, the seven churches of Revelation, one by one church, which is a, a really great way to do it, we're going to do it a different way, thematically, and we're going to look at specific things that the Lord of the church is saying to the churches. And so we begin with the Lord of the church himself, the description of Christ, which you see in the first column. We're going to take two weeks to do that. And then Jesus says to the churches, I know your works, and, and I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. So we're going to take a week each on those. And then Finally, he says, I know your needs, your present needs and your future needs. So we're going to look at all those in that sequence. Now, I'm not going to have this chart out uh, and the full outline every week. So you might want to hang on to the, the chart, just to be able to reference where we are. And uh, if your dog eats your paper or something, we'll try to have some extras available for you um, out on the table or something. But um, so would just keep that. So each of these letters to the seven churches begins with a self-description of Christ. He is saying something about himself to each church. And each of his disclosures about himself to the church is uniquely fitted for them in their circumstance and need. And so we're going to work through his, the descriptions that he has and the, the purpose for those churches is for them and their need. But the larger purpose of him giving this disclosure is to remind us that he is the undisputed head of the church. He is the Lord of the church. And so we're going to spend these next couple of weeks looking at the Lord of the church. I want to begin with verse 1 of chapter 1, which says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now, notice that first phrase there, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The word revelation comes directly from the Greek word apocalypse. Now, you've, you've probably heard the word apocalypse before, and usually, you know, in in a movie or a book, the apocalypse. This is something really terrible, bad, end-time scenario. That's apocalypse means something terrible. No, it doesn't. The, word, the word, Greek word apocalypse just means revelation. So this is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And notice, by the way, this is the, not the book of revelations, plural, but the revelation singular. And it's not the revelation of the end time events. It's not the revelation of uh, the end of the world. It's not the revelation of, 
what's going to happen on this earth. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, so often when we, we come to the Bible, we come looking for information, we come looking for answers when we should be coming to look for Him. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This is about Him. It's always about Him. From beginning to end, it's all about Him. And if, we, if you come to the Bible looking for those answers instead of Him, you're probably not going to find the answers and you're not going to find Him very well. But if you come with your heart wanting to see Him in His glory, to know Him in His fullness, then you are both going to find Him and the answers. And so this book, which does talk about how things work out in the end time, begins by reminding us it's all about Him. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it is fitting that in each of these letters to these seven churches, each of them begins with His description of Himself to them. And that's what we're going to spend time on these next couple of weeks. By the way, look at verse 3. This is the only book that has this kind of a line in it. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keeps those things which are written in it for the time is near. Do you realize you get a blessing just for reading this book? You get a blessing just for hearing it. So we ought to want to be in this book. Be blessed. Read Revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, so the first self-description is the Lord of the church is the one who holds the seven stars. You see that in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Well, who's that angel? What are the seven stars and what are the seven golden lampstands? Well, that's what we're here to find out. So often we think of Revelation as being this mystery book kind of filled with allegory and symbolism we can't understand when that's not really the case. So much of what is revealed here is uh, shown to us in the context. And so for today, let's look, for instance, at verse 12 through 20 of chapter 1. And those verses, 12 through 20, every description that Jesus gives of himself to the first five churches is contained in chapter 1, verse 12 through 20. So that, that will give us a clue. So starting at chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive 
forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and death. Write these things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So that gives us some great clues there. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So what does that mean? The stars, according to verse 20, are the angels. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. But what does he mean by angels here? He's not referring to the heavenly beings we normally think of as angels. You know, the counterpart to demons. That's not what he has in view here. Because he's talking about these angels. And every letter to each of the seven churches, he begins by saying to the angel of this church or that church. And and then he holds that angel responsible for what is going to happen in each church. But the New Testament nowhere teaches that angels have any role in ruling or leading in a church. No discussion of that at all in the New Testament. Something more than that is in view here. And in fact, look at verse 5. It says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen... Repent and do the first works. Now, angels do not sin. Ever since the um, rebellion in heaven where Satan took a third of the angels in rebellion with him, the angels have been what is termed confirmed in holiness. Angels do not sin. Angels cannot sin. In fact, it's That's how we will be when we get to heaven. There will be a day when we will never be tempted again. We will never sin again forever. We will be confirmed in holiness in that day. That's the state of the holy angels now. They do not sin. They cannot sin. So he's writing here, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus. Then he says, repent from where you have fallen. He can't mean a heavenly being angel. That's not possible because they don't need to repent. So what is he talking about or who is he talking about? The, the best way to take this is refer to this as um, the head elder or the teaching elder of the church. Sometimes we call that the pastor. Uh, in a plurality of elders, uh, he would be the, the teaching elder. In a church I was at in Kansas for many years, uh, I, w- I was called the teaching, pa- the teaching elder. And uh, that's what I think is in view here. Um, for one thing, think about the word angel itself. We-, we get the word angel directly from the Greek word angelos, which just means messenger. So an angel is a messenger. Now, an angel is a messenger, but not every messenger is an angel. There are different kinds of messengers. And we use this word angel in that way with some different words like evangel or evangelism or evangelistic, any of those kinds of words. The EV part of that is a uh, 
transliteration of the Greek EU, which means good. The EU became EV. And that, so the EV part of evangel means good. And the angel or the angel part means message. So the evangel is the good message. We normally call it the good news, right? The good news or the gospel. So evangel is the, the good message. In that sense, that word angel or angel there just means, is referring to the message or, in this case, the messenger. So when he says to the angel of the church, it just, just means messenger to the church. And that's why I think it means primarily the teaching elder. He's the one that is bringing the message on a regular basis to the church and responsible for the church along with other elders. Um, besides which, each of these letters says, you know, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, and so forth. So Jesus is telling John to tell these angels. Now, think about this. If Jesus really meant the heavenly beings, angels, how awkward this would be that Jesus is telling John to somehow get a letter to heavenly being, angels, who can then teach the church. That's, that doesn't make sense, see? And so it is the human messengers, the head messenger of each church that is in view here. But when you think about this picture, though, he who holds the seven stars in his right hands, the, what is important is not the stars or the messengers, it's the Lord of glory who is holding them. If you could picture this glorious Christ as he's been presented to us, and he's holding the, these seven messengers in his right hand, the emphasis is on his glory, not them. So he's the one in view here. And he is holding them in his right hand. He's, he's protecting them. And these churches were going, undergoing severe persecution. And it's a reminder that I am your protection. But it's also a reminder that he is the one who grants uh, guidance and gives control over these messengers to the churches. It is what he wants done that is important. So his guidance, his control through them. And he is holding them in his hand, his nail-pierced hand. Do you know that in eternity to come, his body will be the only one that has scars? An eternal reminder of the cost he paid for his bride, the church. And so he holds them in his hand. Secondly, the Lord of the church is one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, also in verse 1. Well, he has already disclosed to us what the lampstands are in verse uh, 20. The last part of chapter 1, verse 20 says, And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So he's walking in the midst of the seven lampstands or the seven churches. And these are called uh, golden lampstands. They're, they're golden because this indicates the value that Jesus ascribes to his church. He highly prizes the church. The church is precious to him. The church is his bride. And so he, he describes them as golden. They're so valuable to him. These are 
lampstands. There's a reminder to us that the church is here to give light. We're to shine light in the darkness. His light. And there's also a warning implicit here if we do not faithfully do that. You see verse 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and do what? Remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does it mean to remove the lampstand? If the lampstand is the church, it means to remove the church. Unless you repent and you come back to your first works, I'm just going to take you out. He's going to remove the church. And so many churches through the years have, have died because of this. There are some that still meet. Some which are even full on Sunday, but they're dead. So the one who walks in the midst of the seven lampstands, he walks in our midst of the seven lampstands. This, this saying he's, he walks in the midst of every church including this church. His presence is here with us today. He is here right now. His presence here is more real than you are. He is here. And he walks among us. Walking, he says he walks among the seven churches. Not just stand there. He's not just standing there observing, but he's walking among the church, showing his activity, that, that Jesus has an interest in everything that we do, in every facet of our church life, he is interested in it, and he's walking among us, walking with us through this. And he knows all about us. To the church of Ephesus, he says, I know your works. Then he says in chapter 2, verse 9, I know your affliction and your tribulation. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where the, Satan, where the throne of Satan is. He, he knows everything about every church, their particular circumstance, their needs, their threats, their desires, everything he knows. And he knows everything about Enid M.B. Church, absolutely everything. And he wants us to know that. I know everything about you. The Lord of the church is the one who is the first and the last. Chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel or the, the messenger of the church of Smyrna write, these things says the first and the last who is dead and came to life. He is the first and the last. And Chapter 1, verse 8, he's the beginning and the end. Chapter 1, verse 11, he's Alpha and Omega. And here he is the first and the last. And all three of those couplets refer to the same thing. He is from the beginning of time to the end of time, for eternity past to the eternity present, infinite God, eternal in all his being. Unchangeable God from the first to the last. He is Alpha, Omega, and everything in between. 
Now, this is a title that belongs to God alone. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. This is a clear claim of absolute deity by Jesus Christ. He is claiming to be God and He is claiming to be eternal. And that is an encouragement to us as believers, this eternal nature of Christ, because he calls us into an eternal relationship. You know, we don't, we don't just know him in this life. It's not like he's just walking with us in this life and then, no, he's forever our Lord and Savior. Forever we have this relationship with him. And, and even after sin and death is done away, after everything of this life, our, our suffering and pain and trials and tears are over, he remains. And he wants us to know that. And in the context of the church of Smyrna, uh, look at verse 9 and 10. He says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, that, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation in 10 days. Be faithful unto death. He knew that this trial that they were undergoing, this persecution was going to mean the death of many of them. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so for this church, for instance, he says, I'm the first and the last. I'm the eternal one. So don't worry about this life. What you are suffering in this life or what you lack in this life. or Don't worry about this life. Have an eternal view of things. There's, a, there's yet a life to come. And when we've been there 10,000 years bright as the sun We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. He has eternity in store for us. And he's reminding us, if you're in a time of conflict, turmoil, trial, whatever, remember that I have eternal life for you, that I give to you. And when does that eternal life begin? You have it now. And you will never lose it. Eternal life is not something that begins the day you get to heaven. You, are, you already have eternal life right now. You will never die spiritually. Yes, these old bodies are going to give way and turn to dust. To be resurrected one day to be perfect. But spiritually, you will never die. And he wants us to remember that. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the eternal one, and in me you have eternity. Along the same line, he says in verse 8, I'm the one who was dead and is alive. This is a clear reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other God ever rose from the dead. In all time, in all history, in all religions, 
There's no other so-called God or religious leader who ever rose from the dead. Christianity stands out as absolutely unique in this. We serve a risen Savior. I am he who is dead and is alive. And how does this affect us? Again, as he's writing to the church at Smyrna, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He's wanting to remind them and to remind us of the resurrection. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, even if he were to die, yet shall he live. Because he lives, we live. Because he was resurrected, we share in his resurrection. He was dead and is alive. And one day we're going to say the same. I was dead, but guess what? I'm alive forevermore. Praise God. Number five, the Lord of the church is the one who has the two-edged sword. Verse 12. And to the angel or messenger of the church of Pergamos write, these, says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is a sword of judgment. You'll see in verse 16, the same statement to the church of Pergamos, verse 16 says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against you with a sword of my mouth. So this is a sword of judgment. In fact, in Revelation 19 is a chapter which speaks of Jesus' coming to earth again in power to destroy his enemies. And chapter 19 and 15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp two-edged sword, that with it he should strike the nation. So as he's describing himself here in the book of Revelation as having this sharp two-edged sword, it is a sword of judgment. Now the sword is the word of God. That's what the sword is. And, and notice it comes out of his mouth. It's, it's his word. Uh, we're familiar with this uh, symbolism in other places. For instance, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's the word of God. And so it is the word of God which is the judge. Listen to uh, John 12, 47 and 48. Jesus says, And if anyone hears my words and does not believe... I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. So his word is the judge. Right now, his word is life and light. When we come to his word, when we hear the gospel, when we respond to it, that leads us to life now. But in the days to come, in the end times, the word that out of his mouth that is a two-edged sword for judgment. And those who do not believe the word will be judged by the word. The particular application here to this church in Pergamos, we see in verse 14 and 15. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And so why is he saying this to them? Because they have allowed wrong doctrine to come into the church. And so he's going to judge the wrong doctrine that has come in. What is the antidote to wrong doctrine? It's a two-edged sword. It's the word, isn't it? Truth, God's truth, is the antidote to wrong doctrine. And so he's telling them and telling us the way to guard against wrong doctrine is to be in this word and to follow this word. Chapter 2, verse 18. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So the Lord of the church is the one who is the Son of God. The Roman god Apollo was the chief god of this area of the world, Thyatira. Now, the Roman god Apollo was also considered the sun god. So it's interesting that in Thyatira, where they worship the sun god, Jesus says, I am the son of God. I trump that. I'm the son of God. And by calling himself the son of God, it's a reminder of the deity of Christ. Whenever Jesus uh, said that the God was his father, that he was the son of God, the religious rulers took up stones to stole him, stone him for blasphemy because he was making himself equal with God, which was, of course, appropriate for him to do because he is equal with God. But they rejected that. They understood that to be called the Son of God was to be called God, to be God. And so, as the Son of God, it's a reminder of his deity. During the gospel period, when Jesus referred to himself, his, the favorite term he used for himself was Son of Man. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, for instance. He referred to himself as the Son of Man most often because that was a reminder of uh, the Lord's humility, that he, he came as a lamb. He, he came to humble himself and took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. And so he called himself most often the Son of Man. But when we come to the end times, he calls himself the Son of God. This is a reminder that even though he came as a lamb, he's coming again as a lion. He, he came to save before he's coming to judge next. He's the coming king who's coming with a two-edged sword to judge. But hear the words of 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those things to those who do not obey the gospel of God? It's time for judgment to come to the house of God first.
Now, as we look out at our society, which is totally corrupt, we may think that God ought to judge this world in which we live. He would be certainly right to do so, wouldn't he? He would be uh, totally just to completely destroy everything right now. He ought to judge. We can understand why he would. But instead of looking at those out there, how God ought to judge, 1 Peter 4.17 is saying that judgment begins at the house of God. That is, it begins here. Instead of us thinking about how they ought to be judged, we ought to be thinking, how does God judge us? When he looks at us as a church body, as a church family, what does he see? Is there anything among us that he would judge? We ought to openly, honestly ask ourselves that question. The Lord of the church is the one who has eyes like fire and feet like fine brass. It's also in verse 18. <clears throat> I'm going to start with the feet like fine brass or burnished bronze. It's interesting here that the Thyatira, um, in addition to be a, being a place where Apollo was uniquely worshipped, is also the, the center of the bronze industry during that time. And so uh, it's purposeful that he says that he has feet like fine brass or burnished bronze that fits in with what they would understand, the glory of that. Also in Revelation 19, it says that Christ will tread the wine press, the wine press of the wrath of Almighty God. Well, how is he going to tread that wine press? It is with these burnished bronze feet. He will do so with these brilliant, pure feet, which symbolize the, the purity and the holiness of his judgment on the unholiness and impurity of life. He will judge. He has eyes like flaming fire. And we'll end with this one today. His eyes are like a blazing fire. There is nothing hidden from his sight. The fire of his vision burns away everything we try to cover up. There is nothing hidden from him. Nothing, nothing covered up from him. Nothing that can be disguised. Think about how eyesight works for us. We have to have light to enter into us for us to be able to see, right? We're dependent on light coming in. That's why you can't see in a dark room or in a cave. You have to have the light. That's not what's happening here. You see, Jesus doesn't need light outside to be able to see because he is light. And his light comes from inside him out. His eyes like a flame of fire. The light from within is shining out and disclosing every dark thing. There's nothing hidden from his sight. His vision burns up every fig leaf that we put over our sin to try to hide it. 
his eyes like fire. And as he looks at our church, what does he see? As he looks at your life, as he looks at our life, what do those eyes of fire see? What is it that needs to be addressed in his sight? We're not hiding it from him. We trick ourselves into thinking he doesn't see or know, but he does. Those eyes of fire see, but I want you to remind you that those eyes which uncover everything also cover it with his compassion. They are eyes of compassion. So he uncovers our sin so that he can cover it in his blood. But let's not try to hide our sin from him. He sees it. Now, just a, a summary of what we've looked at quickly today. Just a reminder that the Lord of the church, he holds the, the messengers of each church in his hand. He walks in the midst of all the churches and knows everything about them, including our church. He is the, the first and the last, meaning he is eternal God and we have eternal relationship with him. He is he was dead and he is alive. He is our resurrected and coming king. He has the two-edged sword, his holy word by which he judges. He is the son of God who is coming as a lion. He has eyes like fire penetrating every darkness. That is a brief description of the Lord of the church. That's who he is. He's not our good buddy. He's not our BFF. He's not our co-pilot. And for heaven's sake, he's not one of our peeps. He is a Lord of glory. He reigns on high. He is the Lord of this church. Is he the Lord of your life? Let's pray. Lord, we bow before you, the exalted one. We cannot praise you enough for who you are or for what you have done. But we want to thank you, Lord, for disclosing at least some of what you are to us this day. And I pray, Lord, that we would um, guard these things in our heart, that we would remember your absolute greatness that we would exalt you and treasure you as our highest joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.